It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review, a new podcast from the FT exclusively for you, our subscribers. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers who are shaping the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record, and I then use them as background for my columns. But with this show, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record, so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. The uh, article was called Russia at the Turn of Millennium, and the main message was, Russia, for the first time since many, many decades, maybe even centuries, risks to become insignificant, irrelevant. And that's our main goal to prevent. That was Fyodor Lukyanov talking about an article written by Vladimir Putin and published the day before he first took office as acting president at the end of 1999. Fyodor Lukyanov is editor of the journal Russia in Global Affairs, and he's regarded as close to Vladimir Putin. When I met Lukyanov in Moscow, he offered some fascinating insights into the Russian president's drive to re-establish Russia as a global power, and on Mr. Putin's curious relationship with Donald Trump. Later, I'll be joined by Neil Buckley, our former Moscow bureau chief, for his view on Mr. Lukyanov's take on the Putin presidency. But first to the Lukyanov interview... We met in his central Moscow office in August, and I started by asking him if he thought it was right to see the central goal of Putin as the re-establishment of Russia as a great power. When he just arrived as president, he was elected in the year 2000. His first term, 2000 till 2004, was a disciplined continuation of Yeltsin line. Rather, he tried to do what Yeltsin failed to do, to make Russia part of, so to say, extended Western community. Maybe at that time, Putin was the most pro-European and pro-Western Russian leader ever. For many reasons, it didn't work. Then it started to change. And many people see the turning point as the Munich speech he gave in 2007, when he more or less says the West has disappointed him, betrayed him or something like that. Uh, Munich speech was uh, the public turning point. Yeah. Uh, if we try to identify his internal turning points, of course, that were several... Um, uh, the Iraq War. Iraq War, Georgian Revolution, Ukrainian Orange Revolution, which was interpreted uh, in Russia as, to put it mildly, heavily influenced by the West. And uh, step by step, Putin got disappointed. He was very much enthusiastic about cooperation with the European Union for a while. But uh, he did not get enough response, as he believed. And uh, personal friendship with leaders like Berlusconi, Chirac, or Schroeder, personally, it was great. On the institutional level, nothing happened. At the end, yes, Munich speech was, so to say, the public, last public outcry. 
It didn't change, and then we arrived to Georgian War and so on. Anyway, the Russian intervention in Syria, 2016, was final act to complete this agenda of bringing Russia back to the global stage as a great power. And in this regard, he was successful because Putin was never stupid enough to believe that Russia can be back as a superpower, as the Soviet Union. He said it many times, the Soviet Union gone and forget about this status. But as a great power, as a power which has its seat at the most important table in the world where decisions are being made, I think that was achieved through Syrian intervention. After the Cold War, the only state which could operate globally and could serve as, so to say, global policeman was the United States. And Russia disrupted this monopoly of the United States by Syria. Do you think on its own terms, though, that the Syria policy has been a success? Because there are still, if you go into Washington, people who say, well, actually, Russia's bogged down there. They can't stabilize the situation. I think, first of all, yes, I think it was a success if we look not only at Syrian situations, in particular at places like Idlib or a very complicated relationship with the Assad regime, but broader, of course, it was a success because if you look at how much relationship between Russia and all countries in the Middle East were intensified, it's uncomparable to what we had before Syria. For example, Saudi king would never come to Moscow if not what happened in Syria. And this OPEC plus deal, which was very useful and instrumental for Russia in terms of economic income, that was also product of Syrian intervention, when important players in the region started to take Russia seriously. That was the main result. And now Russia still has. Of course, you're right that the whole situation is far from settled and we don't know what will happen. But so far, Russia enjoys a relationship with exactly everybody in the region, which is strange. And I was very much surprised how successful Russian diplomacy or combination of diplomacy of military power was for example, still have opportunity to balance between Israel and Iran or Saudi Arabia and Iran, that's a big achievement. Yeah, and, and in fact, it strikes me that in the quite recent past, it was the United States that had the key relationships with Turkey, with Israel, with Saudi. Those were all countries that the US had a special relationship with. And now maybe a lot of those relationships are damaged and it's Russia really that has the ability to speak to everybody, to speak to everybody. Yeah, of course, some people or some leaders in the Middle East expected Russia to replace the United States, uh, which is not the case. Russia cannot do it because the U.S. is uncomparably more powerful and have much money and so. But, of course, Russian success to a large extent, not entirely, but to a large extent, is due to pretty strange policies conducted by Washington, not just under Trump, even before. Because during Obama for players there and for observers like Russia or Europe, it was actually pretty difficult to understand what Obama administration wanted to achieve and what was the real strategy there, whether it was a strategy. Trump is at least more understandable because he says clearly that we don't need all this stuff. He is trying to build the whole policy in the region based on relationship with Israel and Saudi Arabia, plus military presence in Iraq. 
Whether he will be successful or not, that's a question, but at least it's, so to say, it's more sincere. He says that we don't care about the Middle East. And you mentioned Trump. What's the current view uh, in official Russian circles, as far as you can tell? I mean, obviously, the relationship between Russia and Trump is hugely controversial in the US. But I did get the sense that whatever happened in the election and election interference, that the Russians were pleased that Trump came to power, saw him as an opportunity. But is that really working out? Absolutely. Uh, Russians, Russian leaders, Russian society to a large extent as well. Russia was the only country in the world where during campaign, Trump was more popular than Hillary Clinton. It was a global survey and Trump was seen much more favorable here. But it didn't, uh, it didn't work out at all because if we disregard what Trump is saying and we should disregard because it does matter what he's saying, uh, this quality or this uh, capacity of Trump not to care about what to say is well known. If we look at real results, this is a disaster in the relationship. Complete disaster. It's nothing. It's no, it's, in relationship with in Russia. In relationship with Russia. It's not just the problem of bad relationship. It's relationship without any agenda. That's the main problem. Because during the Cold War, at the most dangerous moments, it was agenda confrontational agenda, but it was, so to say, structured framework of relationship. It's not anymore. And since the whole setup, the whole package of arms control treaties is being eliminated, is disappearing, listening to John Bolton, uh, we can assume that New START will just expire soon and that's it. And without that, that was a core of relationship between Soviet Union slash Russia and the United States since 1950s. The arms control, arms control and ability to physically destroy each other was the absolutely key. Bolton and Trump administration at large says it's a remnant of the Cold War. We don't need all this. You do what you believe you should do. We do what we want to do. And that's it. And I think for the next stage, for the foreseeable future, that will be the new framework for the world, which is dangerous, but unfortunately, it's inevitable. And again, without this, the question is, okay, so why do we need the United States? Okay, we do need the United States because the United States is controlling the whole financial system of the world. And Russia, as any other country, is very vulnerable. We should care about that. And I think Putin cares very much just for this reason. Why Trump or U.S. administration would need Russia? That's a question. Why? Since if he really wants to withdraw from the Middle East, where Russia is a player, economically Russia is almost non-existing for Trump. And I think this is the main problem. The problem is completely different than what is being discussed in America or in Europe about Trump's leaning towards autocrats and so The problem is that personally, Certainly, Trump and Putin has uh, some kind of uh, sympathy, which is based on one thing, one but very important thing. Both hate political correctness. And that's why Trump sees that Putin is not like those bastards in Europe or here in U.S. Congress who are so tricky. And so. What do they mean by political correctness? Political correctness is, uh, so to say, Trump is saying things which were totally uh, impossible three years ago. Putin hates political correctness and attempts to 
avoid to name certain processes by real names, especially in Europe. In Europe, this is an important part of the whole political life that you avoid collisions, you try to formulate in a way which helps you to find the compromises. Putin believes this is just hypocrisy. When you don't identify problems and controversies... For example, the language they're prepared to use about Muslims. Is that an example? I mean, that you know, Trump goes on about radical Islamic terrorism, etc. And that's the kind of language Putin would respond to? Uh, not exactly this example, because on Islam and Muslims, Russia is very um, sensitive, because Russia has a big part of population, the which population, is Muslim. Sure. And in this regard, what Trump is saying is impossible here. It's possible now in the United States, but not in Russia. But many things about, I don't know, democracy. What was NATO enlargement? That was, so to say, a way to guarantee prosperity and peace. Here, reaction was, oh, come on, it's a hypocrisy and lie. This is a strategic and posture. Because Trump also. believes yeah. in sort of crude power politics. Exactly. He believes yeah. in power. Yeah. And, and Putin believes in power. So they get on on that level. Yes, they believe in power. Both believe in power. That's why they understand each other. While the power they believe in are different sorts of power, because Trump is a businessman with the economic thinking. Putin is a classical strategic uh, intentions don't matter, capabilities matter. But again, personally, they might understand each other. But the real problem is that Trump, his main criteria for international relations is trade balance. The United States have a trade relationship with many countries, and when the deficit is on the U.S. side, then it should be corrected. That's why Germany is important, China is important, South Korea is important, Canada is in Mexico, Russia is non-existing in this world. Just non-existing, because where Russia is big, like nuclear potential, it's something which is of very little interest for Trump. And that's why I think that in depth of his mind, Trump doesn't think that Russia is important and significant. That's why he behaves in the way he does. He invites Putin for a meeting, then he cancels meeting 12 hours before that. That was in Buenos Aires, G20 Buenos Aires. Uh-huh. And that was in Danang. They agreed and they, Trump said, this is not Trump, but his administration had a tight schedule and so on. It's extremely humiliating, actually. He never behaves like this vis-a-vis China, although China is a real rival. Russia is not. And what he says all the time, we will get along with Putin. What does it mean? No one understands. So, again, I think the main problem which Russians don't know how to deal with is that Russia ceased to be important element of U.S. policy, foreign policy, but Russia became an important element of U.S. domestic policy, which is absolutely devastating for relationship between two countries. Because it's going to be very hard for any president to have a normal relationship with Russia because the Democrats now have this idea that Trump is the creature of Russia, that Russia handed America to Trump. Absolutely. If by chance the next presidential election will be won by the Democrat, for a Democrat it will be easier because justice, uh, so to say, the has been done. Yeah, exactly. Has been done and voters removed Trump. And okay, Russians are bastards, but we need relationship and he or she can restart. For Trump it's very, very difficult because he has to prove all the time that he is more Catholic than Pope in Rome against Russia. And that's why the amount of sanctions introduced by Trump administration is enormous. 
Because each time Congress starts this discussion about Russia should be punished, first move by administration to resist it. But when it escalates, then Trump basically says, you want sanctions? You know I can do sanctions like no one else. I can punish. And of course, it's not serious. Yeah. Okay, so relations with the U.S. look like a bit of a dead end. But then the obvious alternative is China. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's very close relationship and partially also due to United States policy. U.S. hard pressure on China and Russia simultaneously pushes those two countries much closer together. And that's quite interesting because two years ago, Chinese position was different. China carefully avoided to be associated with Russian anti-American, anti-Western position. Chinese never criticized Russia. This is, so to say, ethics between two countries, but always took distance to, okay, it's your problem with the West. We understand, but it's not our problem. Now, because of push from Trump's side, Chinese are uh, much more vocal and much more supportive to Russia as well. But of course, in the middle term and long term perspective, this relationship will be very, how to say it, uh, very rich, not just positive, but many other sides. And from my point of view, most insightful colleagues in Moscow believe to establish balanced and working functioning relationship with China. That will be Russian main challenge for years, if not decades to come, because Russia cannot afford bad relationship with China. It's the greatest neighbor. But Russia will not accept Chinese domination, of course. No leader, no government in Russia can do it. So it's a very hard work how to keep good relationship, but keep strategic autonomy as well. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Fyodor Lukyanov talking to me in Moscow. And now joining me in the studio is our former Moscow bureau chief, Neil Buckley. Neil, I was speaking to Lukyanov a couple of months back now. Since then, of course, a couple of things have happened. In particular, there's been the suggestion after the G7 summit raised by Donald Trump that maybe Russia should be reintroduced to the G7. And I wondered if whether it'll change the Russians' view of Putin, because one of the things that struck me about Lukyanov's take because it's very different from the one one hears in the West, where Putin is seen as this master manipulator and Trump at his beck and call. On the contrary, Lukyanov's view was, as he put it, that it was sometimes a rather humiliating relationship for the Russians. But if Trump is now intent, or at least trying to bring Russia back into the G7, does that change things? I'm not sure that things have changed significantly in the last few weeks. We have had the suggestion that Russia might be readmitted to the G7. But that's not just a Trump thing. It also came from Emmanuel Macron, the French president. But we don't know whether this is going to happen, whether there'll be any substance to it. What Fyodor Lukyanov said, which was rather interesting, was that Trump tends to talk a lot, but not deliver very much. Lukyanov talked about how Trump has even cancelled some meetings uh, at the last moment with Putin, which is exactly the kind of thing that Vladimir Putin would really hate. So it may well be that this is really just words again from Mr. Trump as far as the Russians are concerned. And from Russia's point of view, is it necessarily such an attractive proposition to be invited back to the G7? Because I remember previous international summits where Putin has looked very uncomfortable. There was the G20 one in Australia, which was admittedly shortly after the shooting down of an airliner of Ukraine that was blamed on Russia. But he really looked like he didn't want to be there. And he might be quite isolated in the G7. 
Yes, there's a lot of symbolism to the G7, of course, because these are the big seven leading global economies, but also leading global democracies. And when Russia was invited in under Mikhail Gorbachev, in fact, in the end of the Soviet era, then there was enormous symbolism to that. But since Russia was ejected after the annexation of Crimea, the Russians have been rather dismissive. Well, you know, the G7 is just a talking shop. We don't really care. On the other hand, there is this uh, sort of paradoxical element to Russian thinking and talk on this because, of course, they are desperate to be seen to have a seat at the high table of international affairs. But I think they feel the G20 is becoming much more important. That's the place where China and others are. I think they feel that the power is shifting, actually. Yeah, and more broadly, I mean... We're now five years on from the Russian annexation of Crimea, which caused this enormous rupture in relations between Russia and the West. How do you think Russia has come out of this period of relative isolation? I mean, I know it's a superficial impression, but I was struck in Moscow in August by how prosperous central Moscow felt. I mean, certainly amongst the upper middle classes of Moscow, the restaurants were full, people looked well off. And so to that extent, this idea that Russia would be driven into a corner by these sanctions clearly hasn't worked. In terms of the economic effects, I think it's more subtle and it's more nuanced. If you go to Moscow, there is this air of prosperity. Partly that is a result of a lot of money being poured into Moscow in the last few years, because Moscow, of course, was the centre of the protests against Putin or against the system. In 2011-2012, it was really the professional, creative classes in Moscow who went out onto the streets. And, and of course, so, those protests recurred this summer and indeed were going on when I was there, although they seem to have died down again. We have seen a recurrence. And the interesting thing is that was the first time we've seen anything like that since... Every time I go to Moscow, they seem to come out on the streets. I don't know what it is. Obviously, uh, it's your influence coming yeah, yeah. to play in some way. But I think they spend a lot of money on Moscow to try and buy off wealthy Muscovites. But if you look at the economic picture overall, real household incomes in Russia have fallen for five years straight, which is the longest successive period of falling real household incomes since the 1990s when the economy was in a very bad way. And if you go out of Moscow, there's still an awful lot of poverty. There's actually rising levels of poverty even by Russian definitions. So the economy has taken a knock. And I think if you look at the foreign policy side of things, Russia is still very isolated from the West but it is starting to forge a new alliance with China. So just to go back to the question that I started with, with Fyodor Lukyanov, Putin's efforts to re-establish Russia as a global player. The impression I got in Russia is that they feel that Putin has played a very bad hand very well, in the sense that they're back in Syria, they're now players again in the Pacific doing these joint patrols with the Chinese. There's a sort of cautious respect for Putin all over the world as a very experienced player. And yet lurking behind that, there is this feeling that things are moving against them because the economy is so much smaller than that of China, this ginormous neighbor, and even Russia's trump card, its enormous military. How useful is it really in establishing Russia as a great power? So it's a sort of very mixed picture. What do you think? I think Putin has managed to make Russia relevant again, if you like. I think he's re-established it as a power, as a force that can't be ignored. 
and can't be pushed around. And I think that's what really annoyed senior Russians, but also actually the Russian people in the 90s and the early 2000s, was they felt that they were just being pushed around. They were having things forced upon them. They were just being told all of these neighbours of yours are going to join NATO and you've just got to accept it. So in that sense, they are back as a country to be reckoned with. They are not friends and partners. And I think what's interesting about what Fyodor Lukyanov says, and I, I think he's a right in this, is that this isn't actually what Putin wanted. Putin did want to be a partner at the outset. He set out to do that. He made overtures, particularly to George W. Bush. And Putin now is a kind of rather bitter, rather vengeful figure who feels that he was snubbed. And I don't think we're ever going to get over that as long as Putin remains in the Kremlin. Well, that's another question which we'll have to talk about another time. But for now, thank you very much indeed to Neil Buckley here in the studio in London. That's all for this week. Next week, I'll be looking at the Trump administration and Brexit through the eyes of two US foreign policy analysts who happen to be living in London, Corey Shackey, who's deputy head of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and Jeremy Shapiro is the research director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. I hope you'll join me then. If you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link in our show notes. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.